According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Our study in the book of Jeremiah brings us to chapter 38 this morning. Jeremiah 38. We can bring in the new year by bringing Jeremiah out of the miry clay bringing him out of the well. He's going to get thrown down into a cistern in this chapter. Next week, by the way, stay tuned. Come back next week and we see Jerusalem destroyed. We get a lot of fun in chapter 39. It's a story that's told twice. It's told in chapter 39. It's told again at the end of the book in chapter 52. But for today, Jeremiah 38, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of Peshur, and Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Melchijah, heard the words that Jeremiah was speaking to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, He who stays in this city will die by the sword, and by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live, and have his own life as booty, and stay alive. Thus says the Lord, This city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. And the official said to the king, Now let this man be put to death, inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in this city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. And so here we see, some, same as we've seen in so many of these other chapters leading up to this morning, Jeremiah is staying faithful to the message. He's preaching what it is the Lord has sent for him to preach, and the people don't like it. All right. In this case, the, the uh, uh, officials to King Zedekiah want it stopped. And they insist that the way to stop it is to kill him. And this is uh, what they're going to bring about here, or attempt to bring about here in this chapter. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask the Father to set aside our distractions, to humble us under the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning, and we ask that your blessing would be upon our time together, that the teaching of your truth would not be impaired or limited, impacted in any way on the part of uh, tiredness due to late night festivities or, uh, or allergies. The cedar season is full upon us, and, and uh, any number of other circumstances and details of life that might hinder the worship of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that our entire focus would be on him as we see his faithfulness manifest in the life of Jeremiah this morning. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, I'm going to take this chapter and break it down into half, basically, verses 1 through 13. We'll give some points on, and then verses 14 through 28. Um, We see that it's uh, a message whereby the officials of Zedekiah uh, don't like what they're hearing. And uh, four of his officials get together and convince him to end Jeremiah's preaching. And they gang up on him. I already read the names. I won't read them again. They're hard to pronounce. But these, uh, these four guys here in verse 1 all band together. And, um, and they say, this has to stop. And putting him in jail hasn't stopped him. And putting him in, in he's been in a couple of different jail facilities. It hasn't stopped him. And this courtyard that he seems to be put in most frequently, more than any other place, this courtyard... He still gets to preach, and even worse, 
the, his primary audience are the guards, the people in that courtyard, the, the soldiers, the, the guards that are defending the palace and defending the walls, and they're coming off their shift on the wall, and they're going to this courtyard, and there's Jeremiah preaching to them. And, uh, and that becomes a problem, and so they want it to stop. Their chief objective, uh, objection seems to be <laughs> that uh, the guards were listening to the Word of God. And uh, that, that can't be acceptable. In fact, this happened in Jesus' lifetime. Uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the, uh, the different uh, temple officials, they sent soldiers to arrest Jesus in, uh, in John chapter 7. And the problem was those soldiers stopped long enough to listen to what it was Jesus had to say. And uh, that became a problem. And if you're familiar with uh, the story here in John chapter 7, I, I love it. Um, it's, a, it's a tremendous chapter centering on a feast, one of the fall feasts, the Feast of uh, Booths. And um, if you know anything about the Feast of Israel, it was uh, this, is, this is now the fall before he goes to the cross. So this is the fall of 32 AD, and he's going to, in October, say, and then he's going to be on the cross in, in, in April of, of, of 33. And so this is the final six months, and it's his last Feast of Booths that he has on this earth. And his brothers have all these opinions about going up and making a big splash. And it's interesting how unbelievers will always have opinions about how you should run your ministry or, uh, or what would make you a better pastor or what would, you know, improve things at Austin Bible Church. And you think, well, you know, I, I think you need to get saved. And until you get saved, I don't really have an interest in your other opinions. <laughs> um, but here, uh, here they have it. It's in the early part of the chapter. This is what's going on. Uh, the brothers in verse 3 say to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see your works which you were doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And we're told that not even his brothers were believing in him right there in verse 5. So he's got these unbelieving brothers. They don't get saved until after the resurrection. Thankfully, we see them in, in Acts chapter 1. We see them in the upper room with the other disciples. And, and clearly, they get saved after his crucifixion and after his resurrection. He actually appears to them in resurrected glory and calls them as apostles. All four of these knuckleheads become apostles in the church age, if you can imagine. Well, this is what uh, introduces the chapter. And again, you know, if you, if you want to make a big splash, if you want to be famous, that's what you got to do. And, uh, and we can preach this a lot. You know, I'm perfectly happy to not be famous, to be obscure, to remain in Galilee and, as Jesus was here and, and, and so forth. So he tells them to go on up. My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. And what really is interesting to me is, is what he was being tempted with here was to become famous, was to make a big splash. And especially since he knows this is his final Feast of Booths. Now, I don't have the time this morning, but I would encourage you to just sometime in your own recreational reading, take a look at Zechariah 14, and you will learn that in the coming millennium, this feast, the Feast of Booths, is when the King of Kings is going to receive global worship in the millennial kingdom. Every, every Gentile king on the planet will have to come to Jerusalem and bow before Jesus Christ. And that's going to happen for the thousand-year millennial reign. And you might imagine, uh, here he is going to this Feast of, of Tabernacles, this Feast of Booths, and what might Satan be tempting him with on an occasion such as this? And his brother's voicing Satan's temptations here about make a big splash and let yourself be known. And uh, he couldn't risk it. So he, uh, he sends them without him, and uh, then he secretly goes up later. It's a seven-day feast, and he arrives uh, later, and, 
and uh, so forth. You know, if, 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 you get, if you sneak in the back right when the third hymn is being sung, then, you know, a lot of folks don't even realize you made it to church that morning. So um, that kind of thing happens. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, something caught in my throat there. So, but partway through the feast, he starts to preach, and, and everyone's just amazed. And, and, and then it dawns on him, wait a minute, that's that guy, right? There he is. He did show up, because earlier they were, they were debating, is he going to be here, is he not going to be here? And they were arguing about him. And then, uh, then he does come, and he starts speaking, and then they're amazed. Wait, this is that guy. So uh, is, we get to the, the further down in the chapter, and the Pharisees now are going to send officers to arrest him. And in verse 32, I mean, the, the crowds are convinced. You see in verse 30, they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hands on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him. And that's really what they object to. They don't care if he's preaching, but when people start listening, that's a problem, okay? And uh, many believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than these, will he? You know? I mean, he's doing a lot of miracles. This has to be the Christ. And they couldn't imagine somebody doing more than him or some, you know, a different Christ coming. This has to be the Christ. You know, are our religious leaders lying to us? Are they telling us that he's not the Christ and they really know better? They know otherwise? The, the crowd is starting to catch on to, uh, to, to being lied to by their, their religious leaders. All right, so in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. We would say today an, an arrest warrant gets issued and, and uh, a, a squad is, is dispatched to go affect uh, the arrest. Well, the um, problem is, he, so he preaches some more and, and beautiful messages in this. Um, verse 40, more and more of them are getting convinced. You know, is this the prophet? Is this the Christ? And... Uh, isn't, isn't the Christ supposed to come from Bethlehem? And, and so they're, they're reviewing their doctrine. They're trying to figure these things out. In verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And in verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees empty-handed, right? And they said to them, why did you not bring him? <laughs> you know, if I was sent forth with an arrest warrant, I'm not going to go back to my sergeant without, without you know, the, the person I was sent to arrest. And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Isn't that something? They stopped long enough to listen and they were impacted by the content of what Jesus was speaking. And there's so much in this. Never has a man spoken. And and it's it's true and it's beautiful and it's simple. It's like a, a sheep that knows the voice of their shepherd. It's like a believer that goes, wow. This is, this is where I belong. This is, this is where the Lord has put me. This is my church. This is, this is my family. And you just hear it and you know this is where I belong. And uh, you don't really intend it to be insulting against previous pastors or other churches or other things, but I can expect these Pharisees were pretty insulted when these, these officers, these soldiers say, he teaches like no one we've ever heard before. Because these Pharisees are like the all-star Bible teachers of their generation, <laughs> you know? They got the seminary degrees, and they're the credential guys, and they got all the books in the bookstore, and they're on the radio, and, and they've got all this fame. And the, the officers said, this guy's different. He's not like any of you. <laughs> He's teaching with authority. He's teaching with power. 
So the Pharisees then answered, you have not also been led astray, have you? You know, aren't you guys stupid? You're listening to all this stuff. No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? You can see, because we're smarter. We know more. We know better. We went to the right schools. But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. It's just a crowd. It's just a rabble. They don't know anything. They don't know the law. We've spent our whole lives studying the law. This crowd, you see the scorn, you know, called them deplorable or something like, you know, like that. This crowd. And it's not entirely true either, by the way, because Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees and he was one of the rulers and he's going to speak up here and he's going to, he's going to defend the Lord. Anyway, so there's that episode. And it strikes me of the similarities there between Jeremiah's day and Jesus' day and our day today. You know, with respect to what it is that they tolerate, what it is they're slightly amused by, until too many people start listening to it. And then it's not amusing anymore. Then it's a threat. Then it's a problem. Then it's got to stop. Because if there's too many of, of this crowd, this accursed crowd, too many of this rabble that learns the truth of the Word of God, then the, the powers that be get scared. And uh, the powers that be realize that they're not the powers to be much longer in, uh, in certain ways. And so I find this interesting. All right, so back to Jeremiah then. Don't get me lost on that. I could preach the whole hour on that. But we got some more here because he's got to get thrown down a well. And then, um, then uh, he gets pulled out of it. We get a hero in this chapter we're introduced to. Ebed-Melech is going to rescue him and get him out of this uh, get him out of this well. So the officials go to the king. This is King Zedekiah in this context. Uh, now let this man be put to death, even as much as he is discouraging the men of war. He's a discourager. What a downer. You know, we want the happy messages, the health, wealth, and prosperity messages. He's not seeking their well-being. He's seeking their harm. And, and that's a lie. He is seeking their well-being. He says, if go surrender to the Chaldeans and, you, and you'll have your soul as booty, you will live. So King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. At least in this verse. A few more verses, he'll do something against them. All right? And uh, and it seems to be his leadership style. Zedekiah's leadership style appears to be, Agree with the most recent person who speaks to you. And give them whatever they want. All right? And it's not just this chapter. We we saw it in chapter 21. We've seen this in earlier chapters as well. That, uh, you know, someone comes to him and says, well, I want this. And he goes, okay. And uh, even earlier when, uh, when Jeremiah said, I don't want to go back to the, to the dungeon. Uh, let me stay in the courtyard. And Zedekiah says, okay, you can stay in the courtyard. And you can have a loaf of bread every day. And so we see the, the leadership style here. It'll come back again in verse 10. Because the Ethiopian eunuch here, um, Ebed-Melech, comes to him and uh, says, you can't throw him down that well. You can't leave him in that cistern. He's going to die. Get him out of there. And so the king says, okay. Um, he, he commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, take 30 men from here under your authority. Bring Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies. And um, just agreeing with the, the last thing spoken. And again, down to verse 16, here's Jeremiah saying, uh, I'm not going to talk to you. You're going to put me to death. And uh, Zedekiah says, no, uh, he swore to Jeremiah in secret, saying, as the Lord lives, who made his life, this life for us, surely I will not put you to death. 
nor will I give you over to the hand of these men who are seeking your life. At least until the next person talks to me. <laughs> All right? So, I mean, how long can you trust a promise from, from King Zedekiah? You know, as long as it takes for somebody else to get in there and talk to him. And then who knows how he'll change his mind after that. In any event, backing up slightly here to where he gets thrown down this cistern, uh, Zedekiah in verse 5 says, All right, tells his four men, his four uh, associates, uh, He's in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. And so they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Melchijah, the king's son. And that's a different Melchijah from the father of Pasher that we had in verse 1. That's a pretty common name, Melchijah. There's a bunch of them in the Old Testament. And uh, this happens to be named after the king's son, although it's not clear which king or which son. Uh, Maybe the well had been there for a long, long time, and Melchijah was the son of a previous king. Anyway, thrown into the cistern, which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. And this is the miry clay that uh, KC was just singing about. And we'll talk about this as well. But Ebed-Melech, here's the hero of the chapter. Ever heard of Ebed-Melech before? Probably not. This is the only chapter he shows up in, in the Bible. So unless you've read Jeremiah, unless you've read Jeremiah 38, uh, you have no clue. You never heard of Ebed-Melech before, the slave of the king. He's called the Ebed is slave and Melech is king. And he's an Ethiopian. And he's a eunuch. So as he's probably the second famous Ethiopian eunuch in all the Bible after the fellow in Acts chapter 8 that Philip baptizes. While he was in the king's palace, he heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. And so the king, uh, the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin and Abimelech goes out from the king's palace and spoke to the king. And this is where he's going to intercede. He's going to beg to save Jeremiah's life. And there's so much here that's interesting. The, um, and, he, and, and he plays on it. Abimelech plays on the vacillation. It's like uh, Zedekiah, I even made a note here. Uh, I call it epic level vacillation. Um, which might even be the best explanation for the re-enslavement of the emancipated slaves we were looking at uh, back in chapter 34. You remember right there in that chapter, he frees all the slaves and then he re-enslaves them again in the same chapter. And you wonder, that doesn't make much sense. So what, what kind of a wishy-washy, vacillating kind of thing is this? Well, it's a very, it's a very Zedekiah thing to do, uh, if you think about it. May have been that reason, may have been because of the lifted siege, may have been for different reasons with the Egyptians on the way. Uh, things of that nature. But clearly he's, uh, he's wishy-washy. All right. So uh, Eben Melech, a eunuch. Okay, you know what the eunuchs do? You know what a eunuch is? Okay, a eunuch is uh, physically modified so as to make him safe in the king's harem. Okay, that is, he's castrated. He is, he is uh, mutilated so that he can't sleep with uh, the, the king's wife or daughter or any of the women. There's, there's going to be a whole crew of palace women, all right, that will be family members and cousins and related women, uh, some of the virgin attendants of the princesses and so forth, ladies-in-waiting uh, that we understand, all right? And they need watched over, they need supervised, they need guarded, protected, and defended, and uh, nobody trusts anybody, so they make sure that these uh, guards are castrated that they are not, you know, no longer equipped to, uh, to function in that realm. And this is uh, what we see here, all right? 
And uh, he's in the palace when he hears through the grapevine what's happening. And he leaves this position to go and, and uh, the, such is the urgency. He's not going to wait for Zedekiah to come back that night. He's going to go and interrupt the, uh, the business in the, court, in the uh, gate. So the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin, which is a, pla- a different place of arrest a couple weeks ago. Uh, he goes out there and he argues. And then why does the king go to the gate? You ever think about that? Why do kings leave their throne room and go out to the gate? For different reasons. You could be inspecting defenses. You could also be uh, trying to encourage the, the soldiers that had been discouraged because of that Bible preaching. Um, you could also be in the gate solving some of the legal matters, the justice issues that have to be resolved at the gate instead of the throne room. There's a lot of legal matters that can't be issued from the throne room. You've got to go out to the gate and deal with some of those. Who knows? But anyway, he's there. And uh, if he is dispensing justice, it's interesting, isn't it? You, here you are dispensing justice while you're committing an injustice over there at the cistern. <laughs> you know? I mean, how pathetic is that? Um, but Ebed Melech comes and, and uh, speaks to the king. My lord, the king. Uh, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern. He will die right where he is because of the famine, for there is no more bread in the city. And it's a dry well, but he's sinking in the mud. He's likely to suffocate in short order. And uh, given where he is, of course, out of sight, out of mind, uh, his weekly or his daily ration of bread is likely to not be dispensed and uh, so forth. You know, you miss your you miss your dinner tray because the the guard didn't know that you were in the you were in the isolation cell instead of your normal cell, and they took your tray to the normal cell. And oh, not here! And uh, since there's a famine going on anyway, uh, you can uh, have a better use for that loaf of bread. And uh, Abed Melech realized this: that Jeremiah is not going to ever eat again. If they leave him in that well, they're leaving him there to die. And so. Um, and here's King uh, make a decision who says, okay, <laughs> get him out of there. And take 30 of these guards with you, which is interesting too. Why 30? And what's happening here? The, the, the imagery on this is, is extraordinary. But take 30 men, not 10, not 20, not 50, 30. Take 30 men with you to get him out of there. And I find that interesting as well. Now this well, I would want to stop and right here before we can even proceed for the rest of this chapter i want to stop and teach psalm 40 and teach psalm 69 and teach the davidic uh, foreshadowing of christ to teach the prophetic language that is uh, communicated in psalm 40 and and psalm 69 and we can't do it we, we can't just take weeks and weeks to do it in this format we're moving on to chapter 39 next week But um, I would encourage you, spend some time in Psalm 40 this week. Spend some time in Psalm 69. I'm just going to read them, and we'll see what they're dealing with. And then I'm going to ask some questions. And then if you have questions, we can handle them uh, Wednesday night. Because we have some typology, and we have some foreshadowing, and then we have a display. And the prophets seem to often be the show and tell. They, they tend to be the visual aids in uh, what it is that they're expected to endure and go through, all right? And this is what happens here with the cistern. The cistern execution allowed Jeremiah to portray the great Davidic prophecies, the great messianic prophecies spoken through David, 
All right, so Psalm 40 and Psalm 69. You'll see what I'm talking about here with respect to this. The, um, and, the, and this is a beautiful way to understand how the Bible fits together and how messages are given and how doctrines are communicated and then the way that they're illustrated in the lives of the prophets, whether it's Jeremiah or Isaiah or, or Ezekiel or any of them, they would have things that happened in their life. Hosea had to marry a harlot, right? And all these other, uh, the prophets had to portray these things and play them out so that Israel would see them in the lives of their prophets. So Psalm 40, a Psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. As you go through this psalm, think about it a couple of times. The first time you go through the psalm, think about it in David's life and and all the times that he was a fugitive and all the times he was hiding in caves and all the times that his life was endangered. And then go through a second time and consider this in the life of Jesus and consider the messianic prophecies that are fulfilled in the life of Jesus and, of course, his persecution and his execution and his death. So how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. You know, David could have compromised, could have, could have trusted in the wicked to get him out of that pit. But no, he trusted in the Lord to get him out of that pit. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done, your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you. I would declare, if I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. You want to count your many blessings, name them one by one? You're going to run out of time. You're going to fall asleep before you can physically stay awake long enough to count all the great things that God has done in your life. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened, or as Hebrews says, a body thou hast prepared for me. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Wow. All right, so here is, here is a wealth of meat that uh, we're not going to get into this morning, but we need to, all right? Because this is David's composition. is looking forward to Christ's fulfillment, and then it's, it's uh, developed in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews adapts this and presents it in his great discourses. If you weren't with us yesterday in the New Year's message, then you missed the announcement that Hebrews is our next book study. So we're going to finish up Jeremiah. We got 52 minus 38. We got 14 more weeks in, in Jeremiah. And then uh, after I come back from Ukraine, we'll, we'll jump into Hebrews. And Hebrews will be our next book study here on Sunday mornings. And this verse is going to be quoted repeatedly. Psalm 40 gets referenced in Hebrews again and again and again because it's significant. And here's David issuing the prophecy. And today we're learning, we're seeing Jeremiah living it out. Jeremiah is the one that literally gets thrown down a well, that literally is sinking in the miry clay, that's literally getting rescued um, by the hands of Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch, slave of the king. All right. Um, there's a lot more, but we'll uh, let that go. Let's go over to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, get another glimpse. 
David had all these things happen to him, and most of what David saw, he saw in visions. And then he would write about it, sing about it, compose songs about it. And uh, it was Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and those prophets that had to play it out as in a dramatic fashion. But Psalm 69 and verse 14, um, you'll also note, again, it's a Davidic psalm starting in verse 1, a psalm of David. And uh, save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. How long can you keep praying and crying and waiting and not getting the answer? Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. So is this David speaking or is this Jesus speaking? Or Yes, it's a Davidic psalm, but it's a messianic prophecy. Uh, let's see, verse, down to verse 8, I have become estranged from my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, true in David's life, true in Jesus' life. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Does that verse sound familiar? This is what the disciples were reminded of when Jesus drove out the money changers from the temple. They said, wow, this is Psalm 69 being lived out in our life, watching the zeal for uh, the Father's house consume Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, when I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me. I am the song of the drunkards. <laughs> All right, and there you know, you've, you've arrived when drunk people sing about you. <laughs> true in David's life, true in Jesus' life, maybe uh, your life, I don't know. Well, we can experience similar things. Absolutely. But as for me, verse 13, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. Acceptable. See, we're so selfish and we're so impatient. And for us, acceptable is right now. And, you know, 10 minutes ago, should have been done already. Okay. And the father says, no, not yet. Wait, not yet. Wait. Your rescue is coming, but your rescue at the acceptable time. Uh, Answer me with your saving truth. Uh, Deliver me from the mire. Do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters may the flood of water not overflow me nor the deep swallow me up nor the pit shut its mouth on me you know if it's a dry cistern today what happens if the rain hits tomorrow that cistern fills up and oh sorry about the guy that's down there in the bottom of that oops okay anyway there's um there's more here when you get down to verse uh, 20 reproach uh, and has broken my heart and i am so sick I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. Remember, they all bailed in the garden the night before. Uh, They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. Why did they give that to him on the cross? It was prophesied a thousand years earlier in in Psalm 69. Kind of nice of those Roman guards to cooperate with the Hebrew Scriptures. Because you know... 
we're just all a bunch of phonies and all of this was just made up to try to to try to fulfill these self-fulfilling prophecies. I'm sure Jeremiah just voluntarily threw himself down that well so he could kind of voluntarily, uh, I'm teasing, but you see this is kind of the, the insane hostility that we encounter by the skeptics and the God-haters and the Bible-haters that keep insisting on the fact that the, the Old Testament and New Testament's all a bunch of hooey. And yeah, we, we look at these things and, and are just amazed at how they come together in a, such a glorious fashion. Humanity couldn't write this stuff. Only God could write this stuff over the, the time span that he records it. And so the cistern execution allowed for Jeremiah to portray the great Davidic messianic prophecies. David could speak them, but Jeremiah had to live them out. Jeremiah had to illustrate them, had to dramatically portray it even as so many other prophets would, uh, would do. Then we get introduced to Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian eunuch. He intercedes for and rescues Jeremiah from the cistern. And I find this kind of cute too. We're, uh, interesting. Next week, while Jerusalem's getting destroyed, uh, there's going to be a message addressed to Ebed-Melech. He gets his own prophecy addressed to him, and we'll study that next week. But in chapter 39, verses 15 through 18, is a personal prophecy that, that God makes through Jeremiah on behalf of Ebed-Melech. And Ebed-Melech is, is spared when Jerusalem is destroyed. He's rescued. So we'll see that next week. He gets blessed in chapter 39 for his faith in this chapter, right? He's a Gentile. Not only is he a Gentile, he's an he's a Ethiopian, he's, he's a Cushite, all right, part of the Hamitic descendants, part of the, the judgment of God there. He's, uh, he's emasculated, so he's excluded from the solemn assembly. He cannot worship in the, in the temple. He's, um, so he's a Gentile dog. He's emasculated. He, I mean, everything is going against him, but he's blessing the prophet of God, and he's blessed for that, absolutely blessed for that. We need to learn. I, I, our president needs to learn this lesson. I'm convinced that our current president's going to curse Israel every day he can between now and, and January 20th. And it's breaking my heart to watch this. Well, we're going to come under judgment if that's, uh, if that's the case. He takes 30 men with him, and this is curious to me too. Since so much of what he does is Davidic, I'm curious about that number 30. David had 30 men with him, and they were his mighty men. And they were tremendous heroes. They were not only special forces, uh, Green Beret types, uh, but they were strong believers in the Scriptures. And I think the reason why uh, Joab was not counted among them is because although he was a great military man, he was not a godly believer in the Word of God. But you can go to 2 Samuel 23 and you can read the, the listing there, the Hall of Fame of David's mighty men. And there were 30 of them. And, that, and to me, that's curious. And I don't know... Uh, there's not many places. In fact, I think that these are the only places that specifically you have 30 men that are stipulated for doing something in, uh, in the Bible. But since the, the cistern itself is reminiscent of David's writings, I'm curious as to these 30 men being uh, reminiscent of David's, uh, of David's heroes. Just a thought. All right. As far as the rest of the chapter goes... <clears throat> Ebed-Melech gets him out of there. And, uh, and then Zedekiah wants a conference, just like we saw in, a, in uh, an earlier chapter. In fact, it's kind of, we've got to piece these chapters together too, by the way, with chapter 21. I think 37 comes first, and then 21 comes next, and then 38 after that is, uh, is probably the best sequence on these chapters. Um, 
But like he did in chapter 37, Zedekiah arranges another secret meeting with Jeremiah. And he picks a different setting, a different location, a different time. That's always uh, good. It's part of good uh, cloak and dagger, right? It's good uh, statecraft if you're a spy. Always vary your routines. Pick different routes, different meeting places, different times. If you're always on the same park bench the same time of day, then it gets predictable and you can get spotted. So King Zedekiah sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance that is in the house of the Lord. And you don't know how many commentaries write about this and journal articles and research to try to figure out what entrance this was. And it appears to be a secret entrance. It appears to be a a private entrance from the king's palace to the temple. Um, But nobody really knows. And the king said to Jeremiah, I'm going to ask you something. Do not hide anything from me. And if you're a natural born liar and you think, and you're lying to everybody and you think everybody's lying to you, then you have trust issues <laughs> and you uh, find it hard to believe that uh, this guy's going to tell you anything true. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not certainly put me to death? Besides, I give you advice and you won't listen to me. He never has. He did it in chapter 37 or chapter 21. And this is where, again, the, he vacillates and says, okay, I'll listen to you and I won't put you to death. And look how desperate he is. He gets religious. He says, as the Lord lives, right? You know, like somebody we're talking to today hasn't been to church in 20 years, but he, he'll, he'll say something and he'll say, I swear to God. Really? What do you know about God? You know, are you, are you intimate with him? I mean, you never talked about him otherwise. And Zedekiah, you know, as the Lord lives, who made this life for us, Surely I will not put you to death, nor will I give you over to the hand of these men who are seeking your life. And this is powerful. I mean, if you invoke the living God as your witness, this is, this is the literal biblical historical across my heart and hope to die kind of statement, right? That says the living God can put me to death. He is, he's the one that gives me life. And he can take it away if I'm lying to you now. And so uh, he interviews him in verses 17 and following. And uh, Jeremiah just patiently says, all right, here you go. Thus says the Lord God, (laughs) surrender, surrender to the Babylonians and you can live. You wonder, did Jeremiah ever get tired of preaching that message? How many times has he preached it? He says, leave the city, go surrender to the Babylonians. And yeah, you'll be a slave and they'll take you off to bondage, but you'll be alive. If you stay here, you're going to die. Uh, the city will not be, uh, and if you surrender, you might even rescue the city, he says there. But if you will not go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then this city will be given over to the hand of the Chaldeans, and they will burn it with fire, and you yourself will not escape from their hand. So King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I dread the Jews who have gone over to the Chaldeans, for they may give me over into their hands, and they will abuse me. So he's got all kinds of fears. He doesn't want to surrender because there's a lot of Jews that already have. And if he surrenders, then he thinks he'll be victimized by those guys. So, so, I mean, man, start keeping a list of everybody that Zedekiah is afraid of. You're going to run out of paper. You're going to keep writing names down. He's got all these fears. So Jeremiah said, they will not give you over. Please obey the Lord in what I am saying to you, that it may go well with you and you may live. Now, the certainty of that prophecy is powerful. This shows a counterfactual. This shows God who knows every what if. 
He knows every alternate timeline. He knows every parallel universe. He knows every what if. He knows that if Zedekiah surrenders and he goes out there and he's carried off to Babylon, he knows that those previous uh, surrenderers are not going to abuse uh, King Zedekiah. So this is right here. Uh, obey my, uh, obey the Lord. They will not give you over. Please obey the Lord in what I'm saying to you. So he knows with certainty the outcome of these choices. A choice Zedekiah doesn't make, but God knows the certainty of what happens in that eventuality, in that potential timeline. You see what I'm saying? This is, this is huge. This is, this is better than, you know, these uh, weird time-traveling movies Hollywood puts out, okay, where you go back and you kill somebody and it changes this and changes that, and then you come back and, you know, it's different. Or uh, it's a wonderful life and the angel shows them what, you know, the town is like with... with the guy being dead, you know, those, you know, Hollywood can kind of envision, and we can pretend and envision and whatever, you know, what would I be doing now if I wasn't a pastor? And, you know, we can daydream over stupid stuff like that. But we don't know. We honestly don't know. But God does with 100% precision and certainty. And that's powerful. See, omniscience is more than we give it credit for. God knows everything that is and everything that could be if something else was different. And that's huge, okay? That tells us from Alpha to Omega, God is shepherding every event and every, everything that's reaching for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. And it's a much bigger plan than just what we usually give it credit for. All right. And interesting here too, let's, let's get some more details on this. I think, um, curiously here, he doesn't want Jeremiah to lie to him. But at the end of the chapter, he's going to ask Jeremiah to lie to the, uh, the four officials. <laughs> All right. Don't lie to me, but go and lie to them. That's interesting. The rescue, too, by the way, not just with ropes, but with old rags, worn out clothes, worn out rags. Let them be, uh, let them down either by ropes, I think as ropes might be better, into the cistern to Jeremiah. I think uh, instead of by ropes, it would be as ropes. They're going to use the, the, the clothing and the, and the rags. They have to manufacture their own ropes. I kind of think, you know, if you're going to lock the jail and throw away the key, I think uh, they let Jeremiah down and toss the rope in after him. And uh, so Ebed melech finds and makes his own ropes out of the, uh, out of the rags and the uh, worn-out clothes there and uh, uses them as ropes under his armpits and yanks them out of there. Anyway, thoughtful. Um, what else? Look at this list. Zedekiah fears Babylon. He fears the Jews that have already gone over to Babylon. He fears the women in the palace. The women that, by the way, Ebed Melech is in charge of. Terrified of those women. Which I understand. Women are scary. Um <laughs> Let's, uh, let's see here. I think my antihistamines are kicking in. I'm feeling better. Uh, where did I leave off? Verse 17? All right, yeah, go out, you will live. Stay here, you will die. If you don't go out... All right, verse 19. Then King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I dread the Jews who have gone over. They're going to abuse me. Jeremiah said, no, they won't. And then verse 21, but if you keep refusing to go out, this is the word which the Lord has shown me. 
Behold, all of the women who have been left in the palace of the king of Judah, they are going to be brought out to the officers of the king of Babylon. And those women will say, and here's a message. They're going to prophesy. They themselves are going to have a word. And Jeremiah prophesies the prophecy. Your close friends have misled and overpowered you. While your feet were stuck in the mire, they turned back. And this is going to be a verbal message that the palace women are going to speak. And it actually does happen because Jeremiah, uh, I mean, because Zedekiah doesn't repent. Zedekiah is, is captured and, and uh, blinded and carried off to Jerusalem. These women are part of the, the plunder and the booty of the, uh, of the uh, Babylonian general staff. They become the prize uh, awards given to the generals. They will also bring out all your wives and your sons to the Chaldeans, and you yourself will not escape from their hand, but will be seized by the hand of the king of Babylon, and the city will be burned with fire. And so this is what happens. In the ancient world, you conquer a city, and you level it, and, you, and you, uh, the ones you don't kill, you enslave, because um, you need male and female servants, and uh, the, the high-dollar slaves are the, the, the harem basically. Uh, they're going to be the best cared for, the prettiest, the best fed. They're, gonna, they're the ones that have had the most food throughout the famine. And uh, they're going to be the ones, and, and not only that, but they're also, they tend to be better educated, courtesan-type women for palace life, palace duty, and so forth. And so they can be handed off to the generals, and they become the concubines, and the sex slaves, and the, the wives, and whatever else. And uh, in that process, they're going to have a taunt for, uh, for Zedekiah. And uh, interestingly enough, they talk about who's really stuck in the mud. It wasn't Jeremiah down the well, it was Zedekiah. It was Zedekiah stuck in the mud of his own fear, the mud of his own lack of faith, the mud of his own uh, making. So this is uh, really quite a remarkable chapter. Zedekiah fears Babylon. He fears the Jews who have already gone to Babylon. He fears the women of the palace. He fears his own officials. In verses 24 and 25, he wants Jeremiah to lie about what they were talking about. Because <laughs> uh, it kind of seems like he's, he's, he's wanting to have everything both ways. Overwhelmed by all these fears, Zedekiah goes so far as to swear an oath on the life of Yahweh. Swear an oath on the life of Yahweh. You know, think about what you swear an oath on. You know, I swear on my mother's grave or whatever. I swear on whatever. I swear on. And so what you're saying is this is the, this is the witness against me or this is the collateral I'm putting up. So if I, if I don't make good on my oath, then take away my collateral, right? Take away whatever, whatever it is I'm swearing on. And, uh, and, and to swear on the life of Yahweh when, you know, the living God cannot die. Uh, you're swearing on the life of Yahweh, meaning, yeah, you're going to die. This is uh, the seriousness of it there. Have some fun. You can swear. You can learn about oaths in the ancient world and how serious this is. Jeremiah's prophecy of the harem, or the harem dirge, spotlights who was truly stuck in the mud. Who was truly stuck in the mud? It wasn't, I mean, yeah, literally, Jeremiah was down there in the cistern. But the mud of his own fears. This is what the women will say. Your close friends have misled and overpowered you. While your feet were sunk in the mire, they turned back. And so he ended up on a, on a path he shouldn't have been on, and he ended up stuck. And uh, I don't know. Boy, there's a lot we could preach on that too, isn't there? 
We can consider uh, the, the choices we make based on fear. The choices we make and the path we put our feet on when we know better. But because we're afraid of what people are going to say, what people are going to think, we go ahead and we take a few steps down that road. And isn't it curious how you get a few steps down that road and then you look back and say, well, why aren't you coming with me? Right? Because those buddies of yours weren't really buddies of yours, were they? They weren't really your friends, were they? They uh, they sure pressure you into doing this. But, uh, you know, they're not going to take the fall for you. You're going you're gonna to take that fall yourself. And it's curious how these things, uh, how these things happen. All right. Well, at the end of the chapter here then, uh, Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no man know about these words and you will not die. Well, wait a minute. You just promised me I'm not going to die. You promised me in verse 16 I'm not going to die. You swore on the life of Yahweh that I'm not going to die. Now you're threatening to kill me if I talk? <laughs> I don't blame Jeremiah for ignoring him anyway. How do you trust a guy like this? But if the officials hear that I have talked with you and come to you and say to you, tell us now what you said to the king and what the king said to you, do not hide it from us and we will not put you to death. Sometimes I think I'm reading this passage and I'm thinking it's junior high all over again. You know, here's what this person said. Here's what that person said. Well, did you hear what they said? And they said this person to that person and jeepers. So you were to say to them, so, so here's the thing. If you spill the beans, I'm going to put you to death. But if you don't, you know, you agree to this lie. Because if you don't, they're going to want to put you to death too. So he's got two reasons to lie now. So you were to say to them, I was presenting my petition before the king, not to make me return to the house of Jonathan to die there. And you might remember in chapter 37, there was a dungeon that was deep in the cellars of the house of of, uh, Jonathan. It had been converted into a dungeon and uh, he had been there once before, didn't want to go back to that again. In, in chapter 37, he was given permission not to go back to there, and he could stay in the courthouse or in the court of the guards. And uh, so basically, let's rehash that story and tell it again in this chapter, and uh, we'll agree to it, and, uh, and they'll let you go. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and questioned him. Just, there it is. What were you talking to him about? <laughs> So he reported to them in accordance with all these words which the king had commanded. In other words, Jeremiah went along with a lie. Jeremiah told the lie that the king told him to tell. So now there's a doctrinal study for you. You're teaching your children to not lie, right? You're raising children saying, thou shalt not lie, and you're, you're teaching your children not to lie, and they say, well, what about Jeremiah told a lie? Rahab the harlot told a lie. She said that the men on her roof had left the city. And uh, so, so does that make it right? When's it okay to lie? And you get a, a, an, I don't have an answer for you this morning. A, uh, maybe Wednesday night I'll have an answer if you, somebody asks. But I, I think it's, um, in both cases too, in both cases too, it's a bit of uh, espionage. It's a bit of uh, cloak and dagger. It's a bit of uh, uh, military tactics in in terms of deceiving the enemy in uh, in a combat environment it's um a tactical misdirection why do we have so many euphemisms for lying okay it's uh it's uh, it's, uh, it's kind of true 
They had that discussion in the past. Back in chapter 37, they had that discussion. So, you know, he's not exactly lying. Besides, she kind of is my sister. We have the same dad. We just have different moms, right? That was Abraham's lie. And so Jeremiah lies. And I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe I'll have a better answer for you Wednesday night. Um, Maybe he was wrong for telling the lie, but he did. So um, he, uh, he agrees with a lie. All these words were the king had commanded. So they ceased speaking with him since the conversation had not been overheard. They couldn't prove it one way or the other. So Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse until the day that Jerusalem was captured. And that's where we get to next week. Jerusalem will be captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month. That's when the siege starts. And then the eleventh year... In the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, is when the wall was breached. A day of sadness, a day they still celebrate, they, they, I say celebrate, they observe and commemorate in sorrow. The, it's called Tishba'av, it's called the ninth of Av, and every year the Jews will, will commemorate the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, the same day that it fell to the Babylonians is the same day that it fell to the Romans centuries later. Tishba'av is a day of great sorrow to the Jewish people. And uh, so we'll come back next week, Lord willing and rapture pending, and uh, cover chapter 39. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to study. And I thank you, Father, that uh, on occasion, uh, if uh, something terrible happens, and, and uh, it, it is curious to me, Father, we find ourselves a place we've never been before, and then somebody we never met before, a total stranger, an Ethiopian eunuch shows up and, and uh, blesses us out of nowhere. And I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for the way you design our testing, you design our, our, the lessons that we learn, the way that you assign different believers, different blessings to come alongside and minister in different circumstances. And Father, in all these things, it is, uh, it is it's just a thrill to see how faithful you are from generation to generation. And those that are humble before your word and those that are dismissive and scornful against your word, Father, it is, uh, it is a great admonishment for each one of us that we need to be properly oriented to what you have revealed. You've, exal- you've exalted and magnified your word e- even above your very name. And so, Father, we must be humble before your word. It is worthy of our worship. It is worthy of our devotion. It is worthy of our obedience. And I thank you that this morning, in this year, in this new year, Father, we have the blessing to be able to present ourselves before you, rightly dividing the word of truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.